Welcome to Participate. I am Mike Washburn. And I'm Dr. Julie Kane. On the podcast today, we'll look forward to a new year of communities of practice with Julie. And our guest this week is Emma Hardley. So Julie, 2021 is just around the corner. Um, Looking forward to saying goodbye to the worst year ever. And while I think the fundamentals of communities communities and communities of practice probably don't change year over year, I mean, there's research and obviously people are thinking of new ways of doing things, but there are some things, I imagine there's some things we're looking forward to at Participate, you know, changes that we're making, work that we're doing, helping our partners find the best way for them to build communities. So I thought little bit different this time than in other episodes, uh, a bit of a year end special. How about that? To wrap up 2020, I'm curious, Julie, what you're looking forward to in 2021 in terms of communities of practice and the different ways that we use them at Participate. So I think the one thing that 2020 taught us is how much we need each other and how much we miss each other. So there has been a lot of feeling of loss. Um, I know even seeing some of your social posts, you know, we both were uh, going to a lot of conferences prior to the pandemic. We had a pretty expanded professional learning network and we use those conferences really to reconnect in person. Um, and so it, it was a real feeling of loss, I think, through the through the months. And I think community, the feeling of community, could not have shown itself to be to to be so needed and so important and so powerful. And a lot of people went online more than mm-hmm. they ever had. Mm-hmm. Even people who had built PLNs on Twitter or had other sort of virtual um, communities. I think everybody was online. And in the beginning of the pandemic, Participate was thinking about, all right, how do you take those face-to-face experiences? You're not going to be able to replicate them. Nothing will replicate face-to-face human touch and and being together. But how can you do that? So that was like the first three months, (laughs) if I was going to section it off. And then as everyone spent more and more and more time on Zoom and more and more time in webinars and more and more time in virtual conferences, we were seeing people trying to think of even new and better ways to engage with each other and potentially new community members. So lots, we saw tons of really innovative strategies on building virtual community, using a myriad of tools. You know, you've really sparked a lot of our use of streaming. We've had a lot of partners really jump on that as a way Mm -hmm. of connecting and engaging audiences. So I've seen some really amazing, much more innovative uses of technology. So what I'm looking forward to in um, 2021 is seeing more of that um, is really, now that that's really taking root, um, I think be interesting to see, you know, if, the vaccination brings people together, sort of what are going to be these hybrid ways of going back? I don't think we're going back. There is no normal. We're not going back to normal. That's not happening, I don't think. So it's going to be really interesting to see what those new models are and the different ways that people are kind of reaching out to engage with one another um, using virtual tools. And um, that's been great. And honestly, the people that we talked to over the course of these podcasts are really starting to get that 
expertise. And the, and the one thing I'll end with that we're really trying to do at Participate is what is the knowledge base for our partners so that they can really launch these communities on their own. We're always there to help. But we're really sort of thinking these ways of like, what's that launching pad? What is that mm -hmm. knowledge yeah. base that people can use both our technologies, but other technologies to really effectively build and sustain community? I think you were you were talking about this idea that people are missing their face-to-face -face connections. And, and I think that that's why streaming and, and yeah. it has become a compelling way of doing community um, because while it's obviously not face-to-face -face, even you and I doing this podcast where we're talking but we can also see each other and you know while it's not Julie and I together you know even though I can't wait for that to happen yeah. sometime yeah. Um, this is like the best case scenario you know in light of our situation and um, I think streaming is is has become, you know, the way that we make, you know, best case scenarios um, of, you know, what we're dealing with and still trying to build and develop community and um, and work together and learn together. Exactly. That's what I'm looking exactly. forward to. It's going to be a great year. It is going to be a great year. And this is going to be a great conversation. Yeah. Uh, when we come back, uh, we're talking to Emma Hardley. So stay with us. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. For over 30 years, the Domestic Violence Resource Center Victoria has been working towards their vision of creating a world in which women and their children are thriving, respected, and free from violence. Emma Hardley works across all elements of the organization's Prevention of Violence Against Women program, focusing particularly on respectful relationships education through coordination of their partners in prevention program. We're excited to talk to Emma about how communities of practice inform her work. Welcome to the podcast, Emma. Hi, thanks for having me. So a couple of months ago, Emma, we stumbled on a research report about how Domestic Violence Center Victoria was using communities of practice to strengthen approaches to primary prevention. Little did we know you were the one behind it, and we're thrilled to have you on the podcast and have an opportunity to meet you and now talk through your approach to COPs. So let's start out by touching on what first drew you to the idea of communities of practice where did it all start? Yeah, thank you. Um, I would just like to um, acknowledge that I'm joining you today from the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people um, in the state of Victoria in Australia and just acknowledge um, that sovereignty of these lands has never been ceded and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Um, I'd also just like to, right from the get-go, acknowledge uh, Kiri, Bear and Cressida Bradley for the amazing work that they did with me on the position paper that you referred to, Mike, that we're going to talk through a little bit today. Um, I guess I have, a, for many years, I've had a very deep personal commitment to helping people and groups do their work better and to do their work in really um, deep and meaningful ways together. And a significant way, I guess, that I see that can happen is through facilitation and through working with um, groups of people to help them achieve their goals. And in this context, it's um, often their work goals and 
bringing people together to share commonly held problems, um, to troubleshoot issues they might be facing, to overcome barriers to their work. And I'll talk in detail about all of these things um, as we move through today. But basically where it sort of all started um, and how we first came to the ideas of having communities of practice at DVRCV is that we have an organisation, member network called Partners in Prevention or PIP, which you mentioned up front there, Mike. And it's an it's a network of people. There's about 1,700 members now. It's been a rapidly growing group of people. And there are some very active members in that group who come along to all of the events that we hold and facilitate. And there are some members who are far more kind of inactive who might just um, wait to receive the monthly bulletin that we send out or get in touch if they have a particular question or issue or, uh, about an, an event or something that's coming up. What we found in doing evaluation, and we do lots of evaluation of all of the work that we do, in seeking the feedback from PIP members, what we found was that people were often referring to PIP as a community of practice. And this was sort of around 2015. And that was really interesting to us because we hadn't really thought about PIP necessarily as being a community of practice, um, rather a network of people who um, were quite loosely kind of connected, I guess, that had common goals for preventing violence against women. And so we started doing a lot of digging around and reading and research around what communities of practice are and, you know, cups of coffee with people who had um, delivered and facilitated communities of practice in the past, both within the sector and outside of the sector. So the health sector, for example, I think, and education sectors use and have used for a long time communities of practice as a way of coming together to share commonly held um, challenges, issues, and to build capability amongst the sectors in which they work. One of, so one of the key things that we found in our evaluations uh, year after year was this feeling of isolation that mm-hmm. prevention, primary prevention practitioners felt in doing their work to prevent violence against women and their children and all forms of family violence. And that is because the primary prevention sector, and when we talk about primary prevention, we're talking about addressing the primary or the first drivers of violence against women Um, and there's four key drivers all against that exist against a backdrop of gender inequality and that leads to um, violence against women and family violence at the very high levels that we see and often while the family violence sector has been growing over many many years the primary prevention sector is still a relatively small arm, I guess, within that sector or sector within that broader sector. And often there would be maybe just one person who was a primary prevention practitioner in an organisation or in a region and they were feeling very isolated, they were feeling that they were coming up against resistance to the work that they were doing purely through people not understanding what primary prevention actually 
was or is um, through, you know, sometimes feelings of focus being taken away from the response and recovery end of the continuum, which is absolutely essential, obviously. Um, but coming up against these these challenges and not having anyone to really sit down and muddle through them with, and we were hearing that over and over again. And so we thought, well, we can probably do something about this. And we started to develop a model of uh, communities of practice that we piloted in 2016. And it's just sort of evolved from there. So that's really fascinating. As your understanding of COPs grew, it seems like your vision grew with it. So as you understood more about communities of practice operate, as you saw how it sort of to solve some of that isolation of practitioners, how did you start to bring some of those concepts um, into the Domestic Violence Center in Victoria? So having completed an advanced diploma of group facilitation in 2015, which incorporated a peer learning circle, which um, was the the name, I guess, that the organisation that I did the the advanced diploma through, the Group Work Institute in Australia, um, I started out in my role at DVRCV with a very broad understanding, I guess, of what a community of practice could look like. And... I think importantly, what it could feel like to actually be a part of a community mm. of people who um, weren't necessarily like-minded. Um, I think, you know, we throw around that term of wanting to surround ourselves by like-minded people. Um, and I think that the goals that we have are very, very similar, but the ways that we um, maybe seek to achieve them or think about them might be quite different. And with that difference comes diversity of opinion, obviously. Um, and that's a really important element of a robust community of practice. And the way that a community of practice can feel is quite profound, really, as somebody who has been a participant in communities of practice and also a facilitator of communities of practice now, um, that I really wanted to be able to, and we at DVRCV really wanted to be able to offer to our PIP network the opportunity to really be a part of something that felt bigger than just themselves and their own role and to really start to reduce the impact of the siloing and the feelings of isolation that practitioners were experiencing um, in the sector. So through research, asking lots of questions um, of people who have done communities of practice previously, either as participants or facilitators, um, lots of reading and digging around, we began to thread together uh, what we knew our members were looking for in terms of peer connection and support with our growing understanding of what communities of practice are. And that's where the model at DVRCV really began to emerge and take shape. Um, so four and a half years in now, since our first pilot, we're, we're pretty confident that we have a model that works well for us and for our participants. Um, and like all evidence-based approaches, it's continued to evolve in line with a rapidly growing um, sector, primary prevention sector, uh, with equally growing needs and challenges. I think something that's really important to note is that the DVRCV model is just one way of doing communities of practice. There are so mm -hmm. many ways, so many wonderful ways that communities of practice can be done. Um, and there's lots of examples of that um, in Victoria and in, in Australia as well. And, you know, in America and around the world. And as you would well know. Um, and so I guess what's important is that the vision and the purpose or the, and the approach and the model are clear 
that they reach the intended audience and that the intended uh, audience or participants benefit from the community of practice in ways that support, bolster and essentially make easier the work that they're doing um, in which, whichever sec- uh, sector they're working in. That is awesome. Awesome. Um, Emma, you've talked about PIP, which I love the name, by the way, and it's it's very Australian. <laughs> Uh, you know, to say, and I love the idea of of building a community of practice around that. So, Emma, you've told us a little bit about the PIP program, um, and I'm wondering if maybe you could tell us about some of the other DVRCV programs that you have, and that how you've embedded COPs into some of these other programs, possibly. Mm-hmm. Yep, sure. Um, so DVRCV, which is quite quite the mouthful, we're actually in the middle of a merger with another organisation and um, our name will change uh, sometime next year. So hopefully it won't be so much of a mouthful next time. Um, but DVRCV is a statewide specialist family violence organisation and we work towards a vision of creating a world um, in which women and their children are thriving, respected and free from violence. And more recently and um, with more and more focus on the family violence that that all people experience. So, for example, people within the LGBTIQ community. Um, So we achieve this vision through uh, working from primary prevention right through to response and recovery and having that that focus, which is one of the unique things about DVRCV is that it it really does have that um, prevention through to response focus. Um, and the core of our work uh, across that continuum is building the capability of the workforces that prevent and respond to violence against women and family violence in Victoria. And so we achieve this through designing and delivering training and professional development programs and packages across a range of sectors. So that includes, for example, the specialist family violence sector for people who, for example, are working in a refuge or it could include people working in local government, um, schools and people who are working in the community sector partnering with schools to implement um, what we have now, which is a statewide respectful relationships, whole of school approach to um, prevention of violence against women and gender-based violence. Um, We also develop and distribute resources and tools and publications to support professionals and services who prevent and respond to family violence to do their work in an evidence-based way. So all the work that we do keeps pace pace with um, and helps to build the evidence base. And we also provide spaces for knowledge sharing and more nuanced skill development, which is where the communities of practice really come in. So, you know, that's that's great. And, and I'm curious what you've seen in terms of like results, like how has those the development of those communities impacted you know the actual work that you've done and the the skill building you know kind of this 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 idea of outcomes is a little bit important here i think in particular and so i'm curious about how your your unique approach to communities of practice um has helped you know impact the work that you're actually doing yeah sure um I think one of the things that sets the communities of practice apart from the other offerings of the organisation is that they are sustained over a period of time. So we run a model where we have uh, six sessions, usually over a six-month period, 
so meeting on average about once a month. And delivering training or the development of a resource is something that, you know, with training, um, you come along and it might be a half-day training, it might be a full-day training or a two- to four-day training, and then you, you know, move back into the world and um, utilise that knowledge and the skill work that you've done in that session, but you don't necessarily come into contact with the people that were in that session with you again. Um, mm-hmm. So the communities of practice are a sustained um, way of people being able to come together. And the participants in the communities of practice report that they are have more energy to do their work. They're finding that they are feeling deeply supported by the people that they're connecting with within the communities of practice, that they're finding that they're actually, they've found a space, a safe space where they can come and share the really, really difficult, challenging stuff and the nitty gritty of that difficult, challenging stuff that they're facing um, from within their own organisations in terms of um, getting certain projects or programs off the ground successfully to more a broader societal um, resistance or pushback to the work that they're doing. So if they're, for example, running a, a public camp campaign in their region to um, raise awareness about violence against women or to um, deliver a primary prevention initiative, always what we find is that there is some resistance and pushback and in some cases backlash to that work. And the impact of that on a person's well-being, um, potentially on their mental health, on their sense of self um, and the the work that they're doing can be quite significant. And without a place to, you know, in the, in the response sector, if you're talking about responding to family violence, there's a very well sort of established mechanism of support through professional supervision for people who are working in that space. And that's really, really important for those people that are, you know, they're working on the coalface to talk through with somebody about the impacts of the work on them is so important. Emma, to sort of expand on what you're talking about in terms of the personal growth and the fact that, again, this is about collective knowledge building and sharing and that there are people in that room that have diverse perspectives. And I really like that you're kind of pushing back on everyone being like-minded. I think we know that the strongest communities of practice, I think, is where you bring divergent thinking, and that's really where you take knowledge and you really see pure synthesis. So in the report we referenced earlier, DVRCV highlights the impact of COPs in three main areas, personal growth, systemic change, and skills development. And you talked a little bit about that in response to Mike's question before, but how have you personally seen these impacts of the COPs? Like, is there a particular story that that jumps out at you or, or anything um, where, you know, you sort of personally saw the, the impact of these COPs? I guess the elements of personal growth, systemic change and skill development are intimately connected and exist in support of each other in our community of practice model. And... One of, I guess, an example where I have seen, I mean, there's lots of examples, but one that comes to mind, it's one that we refer to in the paper um, that I think really goes to the heart of those three um, points is a practitioner who had recently moved from the city to the country and was working in a very small team. The, she was the only a primary prevention practitioner, had a small bucket of money, which is often the case, um, very sort of under-resourced, under and 
wanted to do something really meaningful within the community in which she was now living and working. And the she did lots of groundwork kind of trying to figure out what type of project she could run. Was it, you know, going to be an awareness raising campaign? Was it going to be something with a bit more targeted focus? Um, what was it going to involve? And through, she brought this um, challenge, I guess. She was really unsure about how it would go with the community, um, what responses she might receive to whatever it was that she might do. And she still hadn't yet decided what that was going to be. And so in coming along to the community of practice, she she brought this challenge, she shared it with the group and the group then brainstormed ways through it basically. And they asked her a lot of prompting questions and gave her, we gave her the space to start to think a little bit differently, I guess, about how she might like to approach this challenge. And what she mm. realised, and in some ways it seems obvious, and, and for, her, for this person herself, she was like, at the end, she said, it's so, this is so obvious. It seems so logical now that I can't believe that I didn't kind of come to this place sooner or, or my, you know, on my own. But that, that key piece of community engagement and actually going into the community and asking the community what they think they might need in their community, in their unique um, environment in terms of um, addressing violence against women. And that enabled her to then go back to her workplace and back into her community to do some, um, to do a bit of research, to ask some questions, to meet up with people who were maybe doing similar work or um, work that could be done kind of in conjunction with what she was wanting to do. And she ended up developing a really fantastic um, approach that rather than trying to reach everybody all at once, which is I think initially um, with, you know, big visions and dreaming what she was hoping to do, she ended up going to the local library and forming a relationship or partnership with the local library and delivering a program within the library that basically was a, a gender audit of the books in the library, um, particularly in the children's section, um, and posters around um, creating greater awareness around gender equality and, you know, not pigeonholing girls and boys and allowing people to be fluid in their gender and their expression of their gender and those sorts of things. Um, yeah, so that I think is an example of some change that for her personally, she experienced. Also, the library was very eye-opening for the people that worked in the library and the people also in the broader community who visited the library as well. Yep. So I think you can see how that example kind of touched on those three things. You know, it's not only personal growth, that's going to obviously spill over into your skills development as a professional. And then in the environments and the institutions in which you work, you can see how these kind of actions become systemic, right? So um, I think that's great. Yeah. And I think you wanted to share sort of another tactic that you use. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the approaches that we use that um, I guess enables personal growth and professional growth and 
that that personal growth and professional growth or the emboldening of our skills and our confidence to do our work is what helps us to work towards systemic change. And so one of the methods that we use in our communities of practice is uh, visualisation. So we start each session with a grounding or a centering activity. um, And then through the session, we usually do a visualisation activity as well. So there's one that in particular that groups really, really enjoy that I thought I could uh, step you through today if you would like. That would be great. I know Mike and Um, I could use it. So... (laughs) Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. So for anyone who's listening and might be driving a car or operating machinery or anything, um, when I invite you to close your eyes, maybe don't do that bit. Yeah, don't Um, close your eyes. (laughs) So um, I'm just going to – I'm going to keep my eyes open because I'm just going to read from a little script. But I just invite you now to make yourselves as comfortable as you can in your seat – or standing might be more comfortable, whatever's going to work for you. And when you feel comfy, I invite you to close your eyes and allow your breath to fall into its natural rhythm, a rhythm that is unique to you Breathing gently into any parts of your body that might feel a bit tense. And creating a spaciousness for relaxing a little further. And I invite you now to recall a moment in your professional life where you felt successful and powerful in doing your social change work. Step into yourself now as you recall that moment. Stepping into the wisest, most powerful version of self. Create a strong image colors, details, recall the feeling, what's happening, what are others doing, feel your body, feel the emotion. And as you do this, breathe in deeply Three long, slow, deep breaths in, holding briefly and out at your own pace. Now in your mind, draw a circle around where you are standing and imagine picking yourself up in that circle, folding it 
and putting it in your pocket. Pull it out whenever you need to focus and calm and feel stronger. Throw it onto the floor in front of you and step into it. And when you feel ready, I invite you to open your eyes and rejoin the group. That was great, Emma. <laughs> Thank you. That was so good. I feel like we could do like a whole series of that. <laughs> I could do that I all know. day. <laughs> yeah. That's great. So do you do that often, that, that, you know, sort of a visualization before you get kind of a community started on an activity or workshop? Um. Usually a visualization is something that, I mean, it really depends, I guess, on the facilitator and the nature of the group. Um, I tend to like to use visualizations when the group is a little more established, I guess, so potentially in the second or third session um, to start them and to do them not right at the very beginning of a session, but to start with a grounding or a centering activity where I might invite participants to beforehand, before the group actually starts, to bring a nature object, for example, with them that holds some sort of significance to them. It can be very small significance or um, larger significance. So a leaf from their favourite tree or a rock or a handful of sand or whatever it might be, and to bring that along to the group. And I will then, after doing acknowledgement of country and welcoming the group, um, do a centering or grounding activity that basically just invites people to close their eyes, get themselves comfortable like I did just now with the visualisation and then focus on breath and really landing in the shared space together and then drawing um, attention to the nature object that they've got with them and noticing the textures, the smells, the, um, the temperature of the object or whatever it might be. And the purpose or the point of doing a centering or grounding activity in a community of practice is so that we can step into the wisest version of ourselves really um, because it's from that place that we can have the most meaningful, robust, supportive conversations and really get to the heart of the challenges that people are facing. It's sort of amazing because it's a professional space, it's a professional learning space, but there's so much of the individual person that comes to the space. And if the person is not feeling grounded, if they're not feeling supported, if they're not feeling connected, and if they're not feeling that they're in a space of trust, then the learnings that they will um, go away with obviously are going to be limited. So it's about building trust. It's about um, creating a sense of groupness, I guess, from the beginning. And it's about really being able to harness the collective wisdom within the group. And so stepping into that wise version of self um, really enables that to happen in a very strong way. When you talk about transformative learning and reflective practice, can you dive a little bit deeper and give us an example of what that means for um, DVRCV um, and as a COP facilitator? Yep, sure. Um, so when I did my advanced diploma of group facilitation, the organisation had up in the bathroom stuck on the mirror this coloured circle that said, caution, 
Reflection Causes Learning, which I just absolutely loved and it has stuck with me, um, yeah, for all of this time. And it's something that I bring to the communities of practice that I facilitate. So reflection in life and professionally um, and having reflective practice is obviously a key part of being able to do our work better um, and to achieve the goals um, of our work. And that, that involves both personal and professional growth. And so deeply reflective practice can lead to transformative learning where a person's frame of reference or worldview shifts and often it's in quite a fundamental way um, or sometimes it's more gradual and less um, visible, I guess, in the moment. So, and this, you know, this is for even very open-minded people who might be committed to lifelong learning. Our frame of reference and worldview will shift. And it's a really daunting and challenging prospect and can be an intensely painful process for people to go through. But I think it's really, really worth it. Um, and I guess an example of what I'm talking about is that for in the family violence sector, for a very long time, there was a widely held belief that family violence existed at far higher rates in heterosexual relationships than in LGBTIQ relationships. Um, and therefore, we needed to focus attention, resources, energy, predominantly on addressing men's violence against women. And in Australia, what research has shown in more recent years is that, in fact, the rates of family violence in LGBTIQ relationships is just as high and, in some cases, even higher than in heterosexual relationships. And that research was shocking to people, shocking to many people like myself within the LGBTIQ community. Um, and it really encouraged us to start thinking differently about how we conceptualise family violence and where we kind of focus our energy and our efforts in family violence. And that's not at all to say that we need to dilute the focus on men's violence against women, because that is a significant um, problem and, and issue within society, but it's, it goes beyond that as well. So Emma, I mean, we're all grappling with how to manage our various communities. How do we continue to work together and learn together during a time when we're not really seeing um, many of our fellow community members face to face and in person? Um, uh, as we may have normally done. Um, and, and so a lot of organizations are seeing dips in, in engagement um, while also trying to shift um, programs online using a lot of different tools, obviously coming to participate and trying to use our platform as well. And I'm curious how you keep people engaged and um, how do you build, um, continue to build the supportive environment, especially in, in an environment that requires a lot of like personal care and support? Like the, these are heavy topics. This isn't like, like my wheelhouse is game-based learning and technology and coding and education. I mean, I mean, it's not the same. Um, and, and I imagine that I can get by pretty well online in my communities, um, but I imagine that the story would be quite a bit different for um, for your 
communities. I'm curious how you are handling the shift to a mostly online community environment. It's a really good question, and it's something that when you know COVID first um, hit, I guess in Australia, and we in early March were all sent home to work from home, um, and our communities of practice at that point were sort of in full swing. The question of what what do we do now, and not knowing how long what COVID was going to evolve into, how long it was going to last, what it would kind of look like, how long we'd be working from home from home, and that level of heightened anxiety and fear across the community, people need are going to need more support. They're going to need more ability to kind of come together, even though it won't be physically in person um, during this time. And so we, I think one of the biggest challenges for us was the speed with which we needed to um, pivot to the online space for the communities of practice that were already up and running. Um, none of us had previously used Zoom before for professional purposes. Uh, you know, we had some tech, uh, you know, knowledge, but we certainly weren't, um, you know, whizzes at that stuff. We're pretty good at it now. Um, and what we've found is that kind of amazingly is we've had an uptake in the number of registrations for events that we are um, holding. So, for example, we have an annual um, Prevention of Violence Against Women conference or primary prevention conference. And this year we had, I think, double the number of registrations. So, we had about 400 people register and it was all done online. Um, it's all available online now for people if they want to take a look at it. That's pretty cool. Um, so, we have seen an increase also in the webinars that we that we hold. So every couple of months um, previously prior to COVID, we would do an in-person seminar where people would come along. We were um, sort of averaging about 40 to 70 people physically turning up to those, which we thought was pretty great. Um, and through COVID, we've been offering them online as webinars and we have had record numbers of registrations. So for one of them, we had... Um, uh, over 200 people register. For another one, we had, you know, about 150. And I think one of the, you know, even though COVID has, is this terrible thing that we would all much rather not have to live through and experience, the silver lining, I think, in terms of the online space and communities of practice is that more people are actually able to access our offerings. So people who live regionally or remotely who would love to come along to training or to participate in a face-to-face -face community of practice or to come in person to a seminar, uh, they're no longer having to deal with the challenges of the logistics of an overnight stay in the city away from family or the the budget that would be required of their very, very small organisation to support them to come along, you know, for a whole day training or something like that. So while we already were doing quite a lot of work to reach out to those people in regional and rural um, Victoria, this has really enabled a much broader spectrum of people, I think, to come along to our events. And we were overwhelmed with the last round of community of practice expressions of interest and with what we've ended up with we've just started those groups and we have just got 
so much more diversity in those groups. It's really quite amazing and exciting. That's awesome. That is awesome. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, so we wanted to leave listeners with a quote um, from, you know, we've referenced this paper a couple of times and wanted to share it to encapsulate kind of the impact of your practice and what you guys are doing. When COPs are incorporated into sector networking and information sharing activities, practitioners can continuously improve their practice. By participating and investing in COPs, we can work towards our shared vision for a world in which women and their children are thriving, respected, and free of violence. What a great quote. Emma, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, it was great. Thank you so much. And good luck in the work that you do going forward. We can't wait to hear more about it. Thanks for listening to Participate. My name is Dr. Julie Kane. My co-host is the great Mike Washburn. Want to get in touch with us? Check out our website at participate.com. You can tweet us at at participate. Mike is at Mr. Washburn on Twitter, and I can be found there at Julie Kane. If you're enjoying the show and think others would too, we would be thrilled if you shared it with them. Please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or in Google Podcasts. When you leave a rating, it gives our rankings a boost. This helps others discover the show. Thanks as always for listening. Until next time. Until next time.